What's up, guys? Happy Super Bowl Sunday. There's a mask up here. I don't know whose that is, but um, yeah, good to see you. Uh, who's rooting for the Chiefs tonight? Yeah, Bucks out there. Okay, most of you guys don't seem to care that much, but that's that's all right. Um, it's not that important anyway. Have you guys ever been in a situation where you really wanted to connect with someone and you really wanted to talk to them, but you just feel like you didn't know what to say? You don't have to put your hand up. I know all of us have probably had uh, some sort of situation like that. For some of us, it comes up more regularly than others. Uh, I got to see a really funny example of this a few years ago. (laughs) There was a guy in my life group who um, was very obvious when he was interested in a girl. And uh, this new girl came to our life group, and you could tell immediately that he was interested in her. It was really funny to watch him kind of stumble over his uh, words as he was trying to talk to this girl. Uh, It was almost like something out of a a comedy movie, but you don't have to feel too bad for him because they actually ended up dating not that long after that. Um, But I, I think that like him, many of us can be people where it's like we find ourselves in situations where we want to say something, uh, but we don't know what to say. And especially when we feel like we're speaking to somebody that is like out of our league, right? Kind of like what he was feeling there in this situation. And I think for some of us, we might feel that way actually when it comes to our prayers. Because if we think of God rightly, in many ways, like he is out of our league, right? Like he's so much higher than us. He's so much greater than us, so much more powerful, so much more perfect. Like how is it that we could have anything to say to God that he would actually want to hear? Like, I, I can see how we can feel that way. I feel like I feel that way sometimes. And if you think that, in one sense, you're right that God is out of your league. But the Bible also consistently tells us that he wants us to come and speak to him. And so just like this girl actually was not off-put by this guy, no matter how awkward it seemed like he was in trying to stumble over his words and talk to her, uh, she, she obviously appreciated the attempt. And in many ways, no matter where you are in your prayer life, which is what we call talking to God, uh, whether you feel like you're uh, really smooth being able to say all the right things or whether you feel like you're kind of that awkward guy that's stumbling over his words, the Lord loves to have you come and speak to him. And so one of my hopes and prayers for us as a church is that we would be a church that grows in prayer, that we would be people that love to come and speak to our Heavenly Father. And when you look throughout scripture, you actually see prayer being this massive theme that happens over and over and over and over again throughout all of it. Every person, all these big characters of the Bible, uh, we see them consistently being people that prayed. Abraham prayed. We see Moses prayed, David prayed, Elijah prayed, the disciples prayed. And even though this seems surprising, almost like Jesus prayed all the time, right? Like this is God in the flesh, like him and the father are one. And yet, if you read the Gospels, pay attention to how many times you will actually find Jesus praying. And and that's not just the times that you'll see where he does go off into desolate places by himself and that kind of thing to pray. But also, you'll see him praying in public a lot of time too. But you'll see that this is just a regular characteristic of his life. Now, Jesus was clearly such a man of prayer and was, was so... Uh, powerful in his prayers that his disciples wanted to learn how to do it from him, naturally. In Luke 11, 1, it says this, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. 
And Jesus proceeded to do exactly what that disciple asked. He taught them how to pray. And the verses that follow are some of the most famous verses that are actually in Scripture. Uh, if you grew up in church, I'll bet that you have these verses memorized. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, I'll bet that you have heard them in some sort of context before. And uh, his response is what we typically call in the church the Lord's Prayer. And the reason that we call it that is because our Lord Jesus is the one that taught us this prayer. So we see it actually recorded a couple times in Scripture. I told you about this version in Luke. You also see it recorded in a little bit more detail in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that Jesus uh, preached in multiple contexts at multiple places, so that could account for some of the variation that we see uh, between the two accounts. But what we want to do this semester is really start a new sermon series where we're diving into what it is that Jesus taught us to pray, right? Like if Jesus, the, the God in the flesh, this, this man of awesome prayer is teaching us, hey, direct question, teach us how to pray. And he tells us this, we would do well to pay attention to it, especially if we want to be a church that grows in prayer. Now, the prayer is not super long. As I said, most of you, I bet a lot of you in here actually haven't memorized word for word. So how are we going to spend several weeks preaching through this? Well, the reason is because what we're going to be looking at is each section of this prayer. Each section of this prayer shows us something that God really cares about. You've probably heard it said before that you're supposed to pray in Jesus' name, right? Jesus talked about praying in his name. In 1 John uh, 5, we see this. This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So to pray in Jesus' name is really what John is getting at there. This idea that if I'm praying in Jesus' name, it's praying as if Jesus was the one that's asking these kind of things. To say, I'm, going, I'm coming before you with the same kind of things that Christ would pray for. Well, how awesome is it that Christ has shown us exactly the things that we should be praying for? Now, my hope is that as we go through this series, we are going to be people that get to know the heart of God better, right? Because these are the things that God wants to talk about. You know, sometimes when we feel like we have a hard time connecting with people, it's because we don't know how to relate. We don't know what it is that they're interested in. We don't know what topics of conversation they might actually care about. Well, Jesus has taught us right here, these are the things that I want you to be praying to the Father about. Now, many of us have memorized this prayer, and sometimes you might have even grown up in a tradition where you recite it all together as the congregation word for word. And I don't think there's inherently a problem with that. But I don't think that what Jesus is getting at here is this idea of I want you to just like memorize this and repeat it word for word all of the time. Matter of fact, when he gives the teaching, he actually gives it in the context of saying, don't just have meaningless repetition. He says this in Matthew 6, 7 and 9. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father who knows what you need, bef uh, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. And then he proceeds to teach them what to pray. So it's not that it's bad for us to even pray these exact words, but what we don't want is meaningless repetition. And I think for a lot of us that have memorized the Lord's Prayer, that's what it is a lot of the time. It's meaningless repetition. And we can recite it like we can recite the alphabet, but we don't actually think about what it is that we're coming before God with. And so that's why we're going to go slow. That's why we're going to take several weeks to just uh, go through this piece by piece and look at what is the heart of God that's being expressed here. And so this morning, for the rest of the morning, I'm going to be preaching on two words out of this prayer. The first two words. 
our Father. And I believe that these may be the uh, most meaningful of all of them. So let's pray before our Father right now, and then we'll dive in the rest I want to talk about this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you that we get to come before you today. I thank you so much that um, we just get the chance to gather here in person or maybe even online. But no matter what, Lord, that we have the chance to be connected together as we're setting our hearts and our minds on learning your word today, on hearing what you have to say to us. And God, I would just pray that you uh, would speak through me to our church, Lord, that uh, you would express your heart as a father to us this morning. God, I pray that uh, you would take us to new depths with you today, maybe that we've never even reached before. I pray that people would have revelation this morning that takes them, or this afternoon, that takes them to a spot that maybe they've never been with you before. Because Lord, we know that as we call you Father, it changes everything. And so we love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, if you had to pick one word that describes who God is to you, what would it be? I want you to just think about that here for a second. Now, I know your thinking is probably conditioned by some of what I've already said here, so it's cheating if, uh, if you're letting that affect you. But I want you to think about it. If there was one word that you could say, this describes who God is to me, what would it be? I think that there's all sorts of really good answers that we could come up with, right? We actually see a lot of relationships that the Lord describes himself as being uh, in the scriptures, we see that we're called the bride of Christ. And, and so we see this idea that we're um, invited into a marriage-type relationship with him. We see that uh, God is also, we're, we're called bond servants. So God is our master. Uh, w- w- there's all sorts of things that we could say. I would say, for me, most of my Christian life, most of my life in general, and even most of my Christian life, the word, honestly, that I would have said is judge. And frankly, that's not a bad answer. Like, God is a judge. He will judge sin. And this earth is under his judgment. One day, uh, it's going to experience his wrath for sin. And that was something that was very clear to me for a long time. You open up to the book of Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible, and we see that there's this picture of the great white throne that God is sitting on and that he judges people. And he's judging them off of these books. And if uh, they're, they're judged by the deeds that were in the books, and if their name wasn't written in the book of life, then they're, they're thrown into the lake of fire. And so I had this image in, in my head of this, this is who God is. He is this divine judge. And honestly, uh, that's not a bad description, as I was saying. If you're not a Christian, that might actually be the most accurate way to describe your relationship with the Lord. Because you're not entirely aloof from him. Like, he's still God. He still reigns over you. He still has authority over you. But you probably relate to him a little bit more like the judge. And so this is affected in a lot of ways the way that I preach the gospel. And I think that for many of us, it affects the way we think of the gospel. And that we would illustrate it much like a courtroom scene. Where we would say, we are, uh, we're on trial before God. We are guilty of our sin. And we stand condemned unless somebody steps in our place. And so that's where Jesus comes in, that he's our advocate. He comes and he uh, pays the penalty that we deserve, the just sentence of God's wrath that's on us for our sin. Jesus steps in and he says, I am going to pay that. I am going to take that in your place. And because of that, the judge lets us free because we have already been punished by what Jesus did on the cross. He put the punishment on Christ instead. That is what we call justification. 
It's to be declared not guilty, and that is a foundational and beautiful truth of the gospel. And to preach the gospel, as I just did there, is actually accurate and good and right and helpful. But what I would argue is that the gospel doesn't stop there. And I think that for many of us, that's where our, we, we mentally stop with the gospel is at justification. We rejoice over the fact that God has declared us not guilty. The, the cool thing is it actually goes a lot further than that. You see, the gospel is something much more than simply declaring the sinner not to be guilty because of the sacrifice of Christ. But instead, it moves on to something that we call adoption. Now, Jesus has declared us righteous before our judge. And that would be a beautiful thing. Imagine yourself standing in a courtroom, totally guilty, totally uh, helpless, uh, totally ready to receive this sentence of wrath that you deserve and punishment. And then you're declared not guilty because of what Jesus has done for you. That's amazing, right? But what does it mean about your relationship with the judge? It doesn't inherently mean that there's anything with the judge. Uh, you're just thankful that you're not experiencing his wrath, but it doesn't mean that you're coming into relationship with him. But what our justification does is actually allow that to move a step further into actually becoming his child. Listen to what John writes in his gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, this is talking about Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In believing in the Son, we become children of the Father. We become brothers and heirs along with Jesus. In our place in God's family, as you notice from those verses, it's not our natural state. Okay, we aren't naturally born children of God. It says that those that receive Christ get the right to become children of God. This is adoption. You see, our natural birth, the only way that we could reasonably call God our Father is the sense that he's the creator and giver of life. But we don't, we're, we're actually estranged from him. But when we come to Christ and receive him, when we are justified, like what I was talking about, we actually get the right to become children of God that are adopted into his family. And so now we're freed not only from all that was bad, that's all is done away with great, but also we're invited into all that is good. Adoption is like the crowning piece of a, a beautiful tower. We have a good example of this here in Cincinnati. You guys ever see this great American tower? Down, that's the tallest building here in Cincinnati. And when I look at that tower, I think of that tiara on the top, right? That little crown piece where the Queen City, that's actually I think what the design is going for. It's like a queen type building, right? So that tiara can't be there without the foundation, right? And the justification is like the foundation. It's absolutely essential. It has to be there. But if you just stop, what do you miss out on? You miss out on the most beautiful piece of that tower that it ends up becoming. And so we need to be people that, that continue to build upon this, uh, this foundation of justification and realize that not only does God call us not guilty, but he has made us his children. And that's actually the crowning piece of our salvation. The theologian J.I. Packer said that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers and that the entire Christian life should be understood in terms of adoption. He wrote a fantastic book called Knowing God, which I would recommend to everybody. The chapter that he wrote on adoption has probably been the biggest single chapter that has been impactful in my life out of any book outside of the Bible. Um, and this is what he wrote. He says, 
you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. You see, what he's getting at here is that our adoption changes absolutely everything. When he says that you sum up the whole of New Testament religion in this, he's saying when you get the idea that God is your Father, it affects everything about your life and forms you exactly into the person that God is trying to form you into being. So what I want to spend the rest of our time doing here is just examining how is it that God treats us as our Father? What does it mean that he's our Father? What does that mean about the way that he interacts with us? And so first off, it means that he loves us. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. There is no greater expression of love that you can have than to adopt someone as your child. He literally gives us a new identity by coming this, right? Like, think about that. When, when you're a child, let's say you're an orphan child. You're, you're abandoned, you're alone, you have no parents that are trying to take care of you. You might not even know your last name. People might not even know where you came from. And yet, there's a family that comes along and says, we want to adopt you as our child. You're given a new name. You're given a new home. You're brought in this place, and in many ways, you're given a new identity. You're given this, this group that you now relate to that you didn't have before. And when you adopt a child, you better love it, right? Because you are taking with that child everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with it. You see, this isn't like a boss that's hiring an employee that says, I'll keep you around as long as you keep producing, as long as you keep our bottom line up. No, he's saying, I'm going to adopt you as my child, and that means that you are with me no matter what happens. Never going to disown you. And because fathers love their children that they adopt, they want to spend time with them. You see, God literally is asking us to move in with him right? Like, like if you want to hang out with somebody, what more can you do to spend time with them than to invite them into your space? I love what Jesus said in John 14 too. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. God is not someone that sees us just as this beggar on the side of the street that needs pity and that he would throw some money at us and move on, but rather he says, no, I want to invite you into my home to live with me. Come be with me. And now, I'm even going to speculate a little bit here, but as we're talking about this topic of prayer, you might have noticed even when I introduced it, in Matthew 6, 8, Jesus told us, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that a weird thing about prayer? Like, we come to the father, we ask him for these things, and Jesus is literally telling us, yeah, he, he knows what you need before you ask him. What is the point of that? Right? Like, have you ever wondered that? I think that most people wonder, why is it that I need to ask for these things if God already knows what it is that I need? And I think that there's, there's plenty of reasons I could give for that, and I don't want to preach a whole other sermon on it right now. But one of the things is I think that God wants us to come to him in prayer because he wants us to spend time with him. He loves having us come and sit at his feet and be in his presence. And he knows that as, as, he, as we do that, he's going to start shaping us more into the people that he wants us to be. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, I was so excited for my dad to come home from work every day. And so we had this ritual where I would, I would do this thing we called running him over. 
So uh, he'd come in the door, and as soon as he came in the door, I'd come running from across the house, and I would jump up into his arms and smash him up against the back of the door. And sometimes we would just repeat this, this over and over. I'd go like five goes, right? And then uh, finally, eventually, my dad would, would get slammed up against the door, and then he would just kind of slink down onto the floor, and I'd sit on his lap, and I would just get to spend time with my father as he came home. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of what our Heavenly Father wants us to do with him, to come running for him and to spend time with him and to sit on his lap in his presence. Our Father delights in us coming and approaching him. You see, Jesus, our high priest, has made this possible for us. Even our Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Your Father loves you, and he wants to see you. And not only does he love us, but he also leads us as our Father. Any good father leads his family. He establishes uh, rules and, and uh, principles and a way of life to say, this is how our family operates. If you are a rolfer, these are the things that you do. These are the kind of people that we want to be. And God teaches us the kind of people that we should be. Isaiah forty-eight seventeen says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit and who leads you in the way you should go. All good fathers instruct their children in the ways that they should live. And guess what? When you're a kid, sometimes you don't want this, right? Like, let's be honest. Even if you have the wisest, greatest father ever, I, I think my father is an amazing earthly father. It doesn't mean that I liked everything that he had to tell me sometimes. Sometimes I don't like my parents' rules. I, didn't, I mean, I'm not under them anymore. But when I was growing up, I didn't like their, parents, their rules sometimes. Okay? Although for the most part, they, I th think they did a phenomenal job. Um, but just because you may not even have the wisdom to appreciate the rule doesn't mean that it's not for your good. And I think that as you get older, sometimes you even start to realize that and you're thankful for the structure that your parents gave you growing up. You know, part of leading is not only teaching uh, your son or daughter what to do as a father, but also you have the responsibility to discipline them when they get off track. And good fathers actually do this. They don't just turn a blind eye to bad behavior from their children. Instead, they do what's necessary to correct it. And this is what God does with us. He loves us enough to discipline us. Look, look at this in Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see exactly what's going on here. You know, when the letter was being written to the Hebrews, they were undergoing difficult times. They were undergoing persecution. They had hard stuff going on. And, and the author of this, this letter is telling them, guys, God disciplines those whom he loves. And sometimes that discipline, as he says, in the moment it's sorrowful, it's painful, but in time it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
And so know that even as there's difficult things that come in your life, maybe sometimes God's just going to allow them to come. Maybe sometimes God is even going to make it come. He is going to use that discipline for your good. You see, there's a difference between uh, disciplining somebody for their good versus just pouring out your wrath on them because you're angry. You know, good fathers discipline their children with self-control. I, I think about this. I, I got spanked as I was a kid. Never once did I ever feel like my, my father was abusing me or hurting me in some way because he was always totally in control of himself when he did it. I think that when it turns into child abuse is when the parent is disciplining this, the child not for the child's good but for their own, out of their own frustration and trying to release their own anger upon them. And that is not what God is doing to his children. God's wrath will be poured out on the world. And remember, we become God's children not from our natural birth, but from our adoption. So God's wrath and punishment will be poured out. But if you are a child of God, you are not under his wrath. You're under his discipline. That's a very different thing. So not only does our Father love us and lead us, both in instructing us and in disciplining us, but he also provides for us, as every good dad provides his family. And he does this in so many ways. The first and most obvious way is that he provides for us physically. We're going to read a bit of a lengthy passage here from Matthew, but I think it's very important for us to understand this. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God is acutely aware of our needs. And guys, he's the expert at being able to provide them, all right? He knows how to take care of the birds. He knows how to take care of the flowers. If he cares about that stuff, how much more does he care about his very own children? And so we need to be people that learn to trust that our Father will provide for our physical needs as we seek his kingdom, which is what Jesus is promising he will do here. But it goes further than that. Not only does God, our Father, provide for us physically, but he provides for us spiritually. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 
God has given us every spiritual blessing. Not only does he know how to provide for our food and our clothing and our shelter, but he knows how to provide for our very souls. And you see, this is exactly what we needed most, that he's provided redemption through his blood. What we needed most was his grace and his forgiveness, and this is something that he has lavished on us. But I would say it continues to go even more. He's this is the most amazing provider ever. Not only here does he provide for us physically and spiritually, he provides for us emotionally. Every child needs to know that they are loved by their parents, right? I, I mean, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. I'm very thankful for the one that I grew up in. And I never had any doubt that my parents loved me very much. And I think that was very important for me to develop as a young man. And I can only imagine how that pressure could potentially be multiplied if you are adopted into a family, right? Because there's this idea of, is this really my family? Do I really belong here? A good father will have to consistently reinforce to that child, yes, you are mine. Like, I have claimed you. I am never going to leave you. You are always mine. I love you more than you could possibly know. And you have to constantly reinforce that into the brain and heart of your child. And this is what God does with us. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 8.16. He says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How cool is that? God has given us his Holy Spirit as his children. And the Spirit does many things for us. But one of the things that I think we don't talk about very often that's actually very significant for us as Christians is that the Holy Spirit testifies with our own spirit that we are children of God. This is one of the ways that God is affirming his love for us, saying, yes, you are my child. How does he do this? By speaking that to us through his spirit. The confirmation of the Holy Spirit along with the inner confirmation from our own spirit is something that we desperately need. Because I think that for all of us, there's going to be days that we wonder, does God really love me? I'm such a screw-up. I can't seem to overcome this addiction. You know, I, I thought I was out of it, and here I fall back into it. You know, I, I wish that I could uh, change this part of my behavior. I, I don't know why I can't get over my fear. I don't know why I can't get over my anxiety. And I think it's oftentimes in those places where we're going to wonder, does God still really love me or is he ready to give up on me? And this is where we need the Spirit of God to come in and confirm to us, no, Grant, you are a child of God. You know, I uh, grew up in a Christian home. And I, as I started to follow Jesus, I would hear these testimonies all the time of people that had like, yeah, I, I got saved on this date and this month and this year and all this kind of stuff. And I realized I didn't have a testimony like that. And it started to make me insecure for a while um, because it was like, well, you know, I can't, I can't point back to an exact day. And I started to examine my life. And while I couldn't do that, what I came to realize was I absolutely believe that I am a sinner that is separated from God. I absolutely believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, shed his blood so I could be forgiven. I absolutely believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he has invited me to be brought into his family. And as I examined this, I said, you know what? I may not have a day or a moment of fire or whatever that I can point to, but I know that I am a Christian. I know that I am a child of God. I have believed and accepted the gospel. And, you know, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you haven't done that. You examine your life and you realize, no, I've never really done that. Then today would be a great day for you to do that. But maybe you're like me where it's like, you know, at some point this happened. I don't know exactly when it was, but I know that I'm saved now and that I'm a child of God. This, this inner confirmation of the Spirit along with my spirit has been a very important thing for me. And finally, not only does God provide for us emotionally, 
but he provides for us abundantly. Listen to this. I'm going to read on in Romans 8, 16, the next couple of verses. It says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, this word heir, this is somebody that inherits something, right? So a son is an heir to his, his father's kingdom, fortune, wealth, whatever it may be. We have been adopted into God's family. We are heirs to the kingdom with Christ, it says. So as we talked last week about this beautiful kingdom of God that's coming, guess who that kingdom belongs to? It belongs to God, but guess who he says the heirs to it are? Us. Right? Like, th- this, is, this is one of those things that's almost like it seems too good to be true. Like, you're almost afraid to say, like, wait, is this really what's going on? Yes. Like, this is what's happening. Like, think about it. Children get to share in the good things that their parents have, even though they didn't do anything for it. I, I got to grow up in an awesome house with a pond and woods and all this kind of stuff. I didn't do a dang thing to get that. I didn't work for any of that. I, I inherited it simply because I was the child of my father and mother. And, and this is the amazing thing, this beautiful kingdom that, that belongs to God that is coming in. So we get to inherit that not because we've done anything to earn it, not because it's really ours in and of itself, but because we're children of the king that owns it. Our dad is rich beyond all comparison, and we get to share in his riches. And so the last thing, I could probably go on forever and ever about the things that the Lord does for us as his father, but the last thing I want to highlight is that he protects us. You know, this is another aspect of any good father. Fathers protect their families, and this is exactly what God does for us. In Romans 8, 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? I remember when I was a little kid, I don't know if if little kids still do this anymore, I assume they do, Um, when you, you always do that thing where it's like, my dad could beat up your dad, or my dad's bigger than you. I, I, I remember when I was in elementary school, that's what we were always talking about in the bathroom. My dad could beat up your dad. And none of us had ever even seen each other's dads. So it wasn't based off of any reality. It was based off of simply the fact that we, we believed that our dads were awesome, and they were the biggest, strongest guys in the world, no matter what they actually were. And, and the, the cool thing is, while a lot of that was probably unfounded, the, the thing is, as children of the Almighty God, we actually do have the dad that can beat up anybody else. <laughs> right? Like, like we are our children of the Almighty God. There is nothing that can overcome him. If he's for us, who can be against us? And this is what he says, he goes on in Romans 8, uh, 38 to 39, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a dad that is our perfect protector, and there isn't anything that's going to come snatch us away from him. We're not employees, we're children. You know, good fathers may be displeased with the behavior of their children sometimes, but they they don't cast them out, okay? 
And what a, what a beautiful thing it is that our Father promises to protect us. So, we've talked a lot about what it means for God to be our Father and how He operates as that. I think what would be good for us to do at this point is to say, how should we live as His children? What's our response to this beautiful fact that we can actually pray to God rightly saying our Father? And so I just have a few things on that. And, and I would start by saying that we love, right? The, the first thing about God is that he loves us. The first thing that we do in response is that we love. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. When you are loved, it is so much easier to love, isn't it? I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that to where you came to, to realize the way that you were loved and how it frees you up to be able to love other people in a way that you were not able to before. Because it frees you from anger and it frees you from bitterness. It frees you from resentment and so many things that stop us from actually being able to extend love to others. And so our love is first returned to God, right? That's what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But this love is not only reserved for the Lord, it actually gets extended out into others as well. And the fact that he's our father is one of the things that empowers us to do that because he's taught us how to love. And, and as we bask in that love and we learn from it, we can't help but be people that start to extend it back to him and out to others as well. Look at this in 1 John 4, 20 to 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You see, the love of God is something that's so transformative uh, that, that it doesn't just stay only within our relationship, but it has ripples that are sent out and to all the people that we interact with, even to the point where we learn to love those that persecute us. That's what Jesus did, Right? As he perfectly experienced the love of his father, what did he do as he hung on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, not only are we people that love, but also we are people that obey. Jesus set a perfect example for us in this. Philippians 2.8, talking about Jesus as the perfect son, says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus as he is an heir, like we're heirs with him, like we're brought into his family, we are also children of God, all right, now Jesus is a natural born child of God, I said we have to be adopted in the family, but we're brothers with him, we're sisters with him, and the, the, this reality here is Jesus is such a great example for us of what it looks like to obey the father perfectly, of what his good children do, um, this is what Jesus said in, in John 6, 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus was obsessed with fulfilling the will of the Father. And frankly, that was not an easy thing to obey. I don't know if you remember when Jesus was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Sometimes our Father may give us commands that are very difficult, 
Certainly did with Christ. But, but when we understand the kind of love that he has for us and the fact that he's always pursuing our good and the good of this world, then we're going to be, we're going to be obedient children because of that. And I would say that as his children, not only do we want to be people that obey, but I would take it one step further and say that we want to be people that imitate. We want to be like our father, okay? So this goes beyond just the idea of I'm going to do the stuff you tell me to do. It's I'm going to observe who you are, and because I'm so in love with you, I, I just want to mimic it, right? And kids do this. Kids are a great example of this, actually, uh, of mimicking the people that they love. Uh, my brother has, has a son named Hunter, and uh, I, I just thought it was the cutest thing ever one day. We're over at my parents' house, and he loves my dad, you know, uh, Pawpaw. And so um, he, he would pick up on these things. My, my brother uh, lived with them for a certain period of time, so he got to spend even more time with Pawpaw and see how Pawpaw lived his life and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, one, one time we were all just hanging out as a family, and Hunter's over there pretending, uh, it was somebody's birthday, I think, and he's over there, like, reading the birthday card, but I don't even think he could read at this point, uh, but he's just, you know, sitting there doing this. We're like, Hunter, what are you doing? He's like, I'm reading my Bible like Papa. <laughs> and so then he, he got this little, uh, this little toy lunchbox or whatever was there, and he packed his lunch and said, I'm going to work. <laughs> he, he was mimicking this, the exact same behavior that he had seen his grandpa doing. And man, like, I, I just thought, what, a, what an awesome picture that is for us. That we would be people that spend time with our Father, that get to know Him, that see what He's like, and that we would be eager to imitate Him. Jesus said this in uh, John five nineteen. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, this, these things the Son also does in a like manner. And like I said, Jesus is a perfect example for us, right? And how awesome is our God that he's still like, he doesn't like say, oh yeah, Jesus is the, the only one that I love and the rest of you suck because you don't obey the same way. He's not a bad father like that, right? Like and instead, and, and Jesus doesn't resent this either. He's actually the one that makes it possible for us to be adopted into the family with him. But we live in holiness not just because we're commanded to, but because it's what our father is like and we want to be like him. J.I. Packer, the theologian I told you about before, he says, law-keeping is the family likeness of God's children. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, and God calls us to do likewise. It's a family business. We've learned that this is the way we want to live because we respect and love our Father. And finally, as his children, we are people that trust. Kids have a lot less stress than adults do, generally. Um, you know Why? I think there's a lot of reasons they could probably come up with, but uh, one of which is because I think they trust their parents most of the time. <laughs> you know, as you get older, you start to realize that you have a lot more responsibilities you have to take care of, and that starts to add a lot more stress into your life. And if you don't learn to trust your heavenly father, you'll probably just continue to get more and more stressed out and more and more dissatisfied with life. But kids do a great job of realizing, you know, they don't, they're not worried about paying the bills. They're not worried about holding their job. They're not worried about any of those kind of things because they trust that their father and mother are going to take care of them. And we, as God's children, need to be people that trust that God is going to take care of us. 
It doesn't mean we don't do anything, right? We still want to be people that work hard and all that kind of stuff. And, and all of that is actually part of following the Lord and being obedient to him. But I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. May we become people that are experts at trusting our Heavenly Father, just the same way that Jesus told us to in the Matthew 6 passage we read. Don't worry about tomorrow. That, that t- tomorrow will worry about itself. Like, don't you know that your Father cares for you? Don't you know that he knows the needs that you have? So, in conclusion here, I just want to uh, draw attention to one last thing about what a privilege it is for us to be able to call God our Father. In Exodus, when Moses is being commissioned by God to go and uh, deliver the Israelites from slavery under the Egyptians, he's scared about this task. And he's got all these questions when God, God gives him this task. And one of the things is, um, well, let, let's just read it here, Exodus 3, 13 to 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Man, I am, that's like a mic drop kind of name, okay? <laughs> like that, that's the, big, the best way that I can kind of picture what, what is being communicated. This, this is a name that is communicating such incredible holiness and self-sufficiency and eternal existence. It's just like, like, it's just God is God. Like there's, words fail at even being able to try and describe his might and his power. He's eternally existent. He's beyond our understanding. There, there, this name is pregnant with so much meaning. To say simply, I am. He is the essence of being in life. Okay, it's incredibly holy. It's incredibly high and in many ways can feel incredibly distant because you realize, my goodness, he's so holy and great and awesome and high. And it is right for us to think of God this way. Next week, I'm actually going to be preaching on that aspect of God's relation to us, right? But I don't want to get ahead of us there. I think there's a reason for why Jesus started the prayer with our Father. And so this this name, the I am, Yahweh, that we refer to God as, is this covenant covenant name It carries power, and it is a right way for us to view him throughout all eternity. But as Christians, there's another name that we get to call him. And it doesn't undo this idea of him being the great I am. He's still every bit that. But how amazing is it that he gives us another name by which we get to call him? That name is Father. Or you could even say Daddy. Romans 8.15 says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba there is the word that would be used, the, the best translation you would give is basically Daddy. I get, I, I get this, is, this is the great I am. This is I am who I am, high and perfect and holy, the essence of, of power and existence, and, and I get to call him Daddy? Like, that, that's crazy. But this is the spirit that we've received, is a spirit of adoption, that we can rightfully and respectfully call out Abba, Father. And so to quote J.I. Packer one last time, 
uh, the, the, probably the quote that stuck with me the most ever since I read his book is that uh, Father is the Christian name for God. That, that as God said to Israel, I am, this is my covenant name, that you'll know me from generation to generation. I'm not saying that that's undone, that's still, that's still true that we call him that, but that we are also people that have been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Man, I hope that you see what a totally life-changing reality it is for us to come into an understanding that we have been adopted as children of God. And to call God our Father is not something that's, that's trite. It's not something that's meaningless. It's, it's not something that we should just be used to. It's something that we should be in awe of, that the great I Am would adopt us as his children. Uh, let's pray. God, you are worthy of all of our worship. Every bit of it, you are. Like, like you, you are, are so holy and so high and so uh, above us, yet you have decided that you would still love us and make us your children. And God, I, I could not, I, time would fail me to be able to preach about the continuous wonders of that. And Lord, I thank you that we get to be people that get to, to lean into this more and more every day, that we get to grow as your kids. Lord, help us to be people that, that cry out, Abba, Father, along with your spirit, that confirms with our own spirit that we are your children. And God, if there are people here this, this afternoon that are not your children, that have not been adopted yet, that have not believed in Christ, then God, I pray that today would be a day that they make that step, that they would leave behind the sin and the shame and the baggage, that they would leave behind their, their condemnation, that they would come to Christ, be justified, Lord, be forgiven of sin, and be adopted as your children. God, I pray for those of us that do know you, that, that maybe have just stopped at justification, and, and we've been thankful that you declared us not guilty, but we really haven't experienced the depth of you being our Father, Lord, I pray that you would take us to new depths in our life with you. Lord, that we would be people that, that experience you as our Father in a way that we never have before. We love you so much, Daddy. We love you, and I thank you that you love us. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.